Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I flagged down a guy, had my big backpack and me and him on this motorbike and we're driving along and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to cross a border by land uh, two weeks after coming to Africa for the first time. And then all of a sudden we get off the bike. Uh, he says to me, okay, you're, you can get off now. And I was, said, well, what do you mean? I want to go to Uganda. He was like, what do you mean? You are in Uganda. Welcome to Uganda. <laughs> and I was like, uh, excuse me, what about the border? Meanwhile, some police officers come up and are like, what's going on here? And now I'm freaking out because I just crossed a border illegally. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to end up in African jail. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Tarek Kalusi. He identifies as a recovering corporate guy. He left his high-level corporate finance job at age 35 to start traveling the world and finding his purpose. With an undergraduate degree from Georgetown, a master's from NYU, and years of work experience at world-leading financial services organizations in both New York and London, Tarek had reached financial independence from work but was unfulfilled. Having saved and invested enough money to cover his basic living expenses with passive income, Tarek left the corporate world and has since traveled to 100 countries. He has run 25 marathons around the world, and he's had epic adventures and is now turning his focus towards his true passion of supporting socially sustainable initiatives that empower marginalized and impoverished communities around the world. He has recently founded Nomads Giving Back, a social enterprise which is designed to create awareness and opportunities for digital nomads and other travelers to give back to the communities they call home away from home in a manner that supports and empowers the local communities. Tarek, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Excited to chat with you. I am super excited to have you here. We are in Brazil at the moment, and we just came off of the Nomad Cruise together where we took a boat from Spain to Brazil. And en route, we stopped in the African island nation of Cape Verde, which was your 100th country. Yeah. Couldn't be more thrilled. It's still fresh in the memory, so it's still getting used to that idea. 
That's an amazing milestone, my man. I have quite a ways to go to catch up to that number, but super excited to get into this and hear some of your incredible travel stories. Let's start, though, just with a little bit of background. I mean, can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and what your sort of professional career trajectory was and then eventually get up to what caused you to sort of change course and how did that come about? I was born in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, and raised in a small town outside of Philly, known for one major thing, their home of a Yingling Beer, the oldest brewery in America, Pottsville, PA. Uh, I moved on to going to college in DC. So I was there for four years, went off to New York City where I did the uh, traditional corporate career path. However, my first year in the working world was far from traditional. It's just so happy to coincide that I moved to the, the Big Apple just two months before 9-11, which was an experience that changed my life uh, and many others. But corporate-wise, I had worked at Arthur Anderson, which at the time, everyone would recognize the name, but many probably won't today because within months after joining them, they had got involved in probably the biggest corporate scandal of our lifetime with Enron. They were their accountants. And so unexpectedly lost my job. But, you know, always in hindsight, sometimes it's the tough problems, the tough challenges in your life that actually serve you well. And how that served me well was that for the first time in my life, I felt financially vulnerable um, and also uh, appreciative of when things do go well. And so when I eventually got another job, I was very grateful and decided to avoid as much as I could ever feeling that vulnerable again. And so I worked my tail off for the next dozen years. And I also saved more than I probably would have. Thought about you know contingency plans and long-term thinking. Yeah, and I climbed the corporate ladder working at places like Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Then I hopped over to a health care organization that partnered with Goldman Sachs. So I was embedded in their offices in New York. Then I had an amazing opportunity to join Goldman Sachs in their London office and work for them there, which coincided with the financial crash in 2007. Again, went through that kind of experience again, seeing investments drop, people getting laid off. The world was you know, close to a crash that would have been hard to come back from. But at that point, I had already established some savings and was a little bit more comfortable with the unexpected. And I also ended up traveling to more developing countries at the time. I went on my first real trip to Southeast Asia and opened my eyes to see how some people were living their lives in the field. And I really resonated more, I think, with the international community that were abroad in developing countries. I realized it wasn't actually too hard to get another job in New York City after that and Philadelphia as well. And uh, joined an organization that was acquired by Walgreens that provided corporate health and wellness services for the large companies. And yeah, it was a great learning experience to actually get more into sales and client management. Went from there, I learned to grow professionally in terms of being able to put yourself in the client situation and understand what they're looking to do. And uh, yeah, along the way, I realized that I lost my interest in working in the corporate world now that I saw glimpses of the real world. And whenever I had a vacation, I found myself going as far as I could from my normal corporate life. That included going into poverty uh, areas where I did some volunteer work in places like China to build homes for the poor, partnering with Habitat for Humanity. 
I also did some volunteer work over the years in, in Kenya as a fellow for Kiva. Kiva is an organization based out of San Francisco that does microfinance work. And that was a phenomenal experience. Every time I would return back to my normal corporate life in the big city, indirectly helping richer people get richer, it was a too much of a contrast for me to be okay with that. So once I had a, a nest egg enough to have a reliable passive income from investments, I decided to finally make a leap, go see the real world and go after a dream of trying to make a difference in some way. I feel like there's a lot of people that will be able to relate to your story because they're on a career path. They, of course, were socialized that this is not only what you're supposed to do to be an upstanding member of society and all that kind of stuff, but it's the safe path. And it's, you know, it's all of these things. And there's a lot of social pressure, whether it's from parents or from peer-to-peer social or keeping up with the Joneses or whatever it is that we're socialized into. So for you, what was really the moment when you actually made that decision to change course entirely with your life? How did that moment arise? That's a really, really good question. And, you know, I was asked that from time to time, and I never had a very clear answer until recently I decided to sit down and do a lot of reflection. And I did realize that there were a few very specific key moments combined that gave me the, not only the confidence, but the conviction to make a big life change. So around 2013 or so, 2012, 2012, I uh, had a couple of things that happened. One is I had a cousin who I spent my childhood summers with, who was just a couple of years older than me, who unfortunately and suddenly passed away. That was a, a shock for all of us. It made me really realize for the first time, we all know we're going to die, but to really feel that sooner or later I was going to die. And within a few months, also Hurricane Sandy hit New York City and and the region, which caused hundreds of deaths and an ominous blackout where I was living in the East Village for four days. And funny enough, I was scheduled to run my very first marathon that same Sunday. And at the last moment, it was canceled. And instead, the runners were invited to volunteer in Staten Island, where the race would have started on race day. And I did that. And I met with a family and helped them clear their house. And this family was stuck in their attic for two days. Two young boys died in their backyard and drowned. And just seeing what they had gone through and, and at the same time that I was supposed to do something that I thought I could never do, which was run a marathon, it just really made me realize like a shock of how much we take for granted in life and how temporary life is. Two weeks later, I made up that marathon in Philadelphia, where the city of my birth, uh, ran by the hospital I was born in, actually, during that run. You know, at the finish line, you take that traditional finish photo, and it so happened that there was a flag. There's a street in Philly with a lot of flags, and the photo, the flag that was behind my photo was Egypt, my motherland, and that was, that was in my birth city. So I thought that was very serendipitous that both were unintentional and very serendipitous. So in that same few months, I had met someone walking the streets very randomly. She was moving her boxes. Her name's Chrissy. And she, they were falling. So I went, ran up and tried to help her with them. And we made small talk. And it turned out that she was moving all her boxes to her parents' home in California because a year earlier, she had decided to leave the corporate world to go explore the real world. And she told me that now that she just completed traveling to her 100th country, 
she now wanted to go after her new dream, which was to create a social enterprise. And I thought to myself, what? Are you kidding me? This was my dream life she was living. And so the way I like to see it in hindsight is that my cousin's unfortunate and sudden death combined with Hurricane Sandy and the blackout and deaths of my neighbors really sort of served to wake me up. And the combination of my first marathon and seeing Chrissy's dream life made me realize that like maybe maybe I can go after my dream life too. That's amazing. And I feel like a lot of times things happen that, you know, are very unexpected and they do wake us up. Like for me, you know, I had gone one direction entirely with all of my academic work, including my graduate work and all of my work experience up until the age of 30. And then one day I unexpectedly got fired from my job. Right. And the initial thought is, wow, this like my head is spinning. Like, what am I going to do? Like, this is all this stuff. And then I just started processing it and thinking about it, saying, you know what? This is clearly a sign of some kind that I need to change direction. How big of a direction change I make is up to me. And I am going to decide on this very day, literally the day that I got fired, that I'm not going to apply to work for anyone else again. I'm going to figure out how to start my own business, chart my own course, and create this lifestyle and take more control over my life and be able to design it the way that I want to do it. But if that hadn't happened, you know, would I have actually left, you know, if something hadn't you know, pushed me out of it. And I feel like a lot of people are in those sort of, they're kind of okay, sort of mediocre. They're not horrible. And then sometimes it really does take, you know, an eye-opening experience to say, hey, there is another possibility. There is another option. And you can take control of that if you just make the move to do it. So that's why I love your story, man. So so let's talk a little bit maybe about the marathons too, because as you mentioned, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about it, what led up to your decision to you know, get the confidence that you could, if you wanted to run a marathon. And then after you completed the, the first one in Philly, you know, what were your next level? Cause you've now run them all over the world. So I'd love to hear about how that sort of marathon specific experience went for you. Sure. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I was like many of us passionate about sports and probably even more than the average guy. But when I got into college, I started to kind of lose that passion uh, at least investing the time into it. And going into New York City, it's not necessarily the easiest place to remain active other than going to the gym. And then with the stresses of work and especially a very tumultuous corporate career, and I found myself prioritizing work and financial independence above everything else to a fall. So I ended up overeating and gaining weight. I ended up uh, probably having too many drinks from time to time. And also smoking, you know, it's hard to believe, but I started smoking when I was a kid, like a teenager and smoked for 23 years. So all those things combined doesn't really make for the most healthiest style, lifestyle, not to mention the stresses of working a lot of hours. What I realized though, is that it wasn't sustainable. And I one, one day was invited to run a 5k. It was with the JP Morgan corporate challenge that a lot of companies around the world do. And I was working for Sloan Kettering, the cancer hospital in New York at the time. I thought, 5K, I can do that, you know? And so I, I, I ran it. And crossing that finish line just felt so good doing something that I haven't done before. And then when I got back to my office, my team had a banner up celebrating my accomplishment, which a lot of people would laugh thinking a 5K is not much of an accomplishment. But for me at the time, it was. That just made me feel really good about myself. And then I'm very, very goal-oriented, 
So I like to see growth as well in, in anything in my life. And so I, oh, the 5K led to a 10K, led to a 21K, which is a half marathon. And I always admired the New York City Marathon people. I would often go watch it. My, my roommate, one of my best friends had run it. And, but I always thought that was for someone else. and wasn't, It really wasn't for me. It wasn't for my, in my ability. But something made me just want to reach for more. And I thought to myself, I have a lot of goals in life that I didn't know if I can go for. But if I thought if I can do the impossible for me in this marathon, then maybe I can do the impossible for me in other parts of my life, like start a business, for example. I applied for the New York Marathon multiple times, but I didn't get in. The first time, second time, it's a lottery. Third time. And then at the time, they had a rule where I think if you apply three times, you're guaranteed a spot. And so the one time I get in, it was canceled. <laughs> but eventually, like I said, I got to run it eventually. And it just gave me that boost of confidence and ability and optimism that you know, if you work hard enough and you plan for it, you can do anything you want. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine what the amount of training would be to get me from where I am now, which is probably, I'd have to train for a 5K probably at the moment. I could do that though. I feel like you said where you started, but then that's a big step. But then once you did that, you didn't stop with simply, I ran one marathon, right? I mean, for some people it might be, I want to run a marathon in my life. Like that's a bucket list item. And if I train for it and I could do it and then they do it and then, okay, I've, I'm done with that. But you kept going after that. Can you talk a little bit about the other marathons that you ran and sort of how you took the one marathon and then literally stepped it up from there? Funny enough, you mentioned how I went and left my corporate life to go travel abroad. And uh, I did that once and I did some volunteer work. And then I, I came back to the US just to go to a few weddings of my college friends. And when I did that, I ended up getting sucked back into my corporate life a second time. I realized now what was on the other side and that didn't last very long, uh, just over a year. And when I decided that I was going to go leave abroad again and get into social causes and travel, I planned it so that the day before I would leave, I would do the hardest race of my life, which was a, a double marathon, uh, 84 kilometers or 42 miles in San Francisco. So it was the normal San Francisco marathon, but 50 of us ran it at 12 at midnight the opposite route of the normal route. And then at 5 a.m., we joined the other 10 or 20,000 runners and ran it again. So that was my first time running more than a marathon, and I decided to just double it. <laughs> and it worked out. It, believe it or not, it worked out. And it was so empowering to cross that line because I literally thought to myself, "If wow, I can do anything now. It was also inspiring for other people. Like my friends that know my history of smoking and, and, and other challenges. And so that's one thing I realized that really motivates me is when I feel that other people are inspired by my story. And it just, it creates this virtuous cycle of the more I help or the more I can inspire, the more I'm helped and the more I'm inspired. And the very next day I, I started my journey, I flew straight to the Taj Mahal like right from the airport to the airport to the Taj Mahal. And there was a, one hell of a way to kick off my journey. And then throughout my, my travels, I ended up running a few months later, the highest marathon in the world, Everest Base Camp. We trekked up there and then uh, with a group of maybe 25, 26 runners and a lot of amazing help staff, support staff. And it was incredible experience. I mean, I've never been in such a scenic, 
atmosphere that inspires you just from being there and being surrounded, not just by the the unbelievable mountains, but the resilient Sherpas and the determined runners. And one of them uh, who became a good friend of mine named Daisy, she had just shared with me that she ran 12 marathons in the last 12 months. And I thought she was insane. She was just so humble and like just told me, oh, if you want to, you totally can do it too. I literally laughed at her, like seriously. But you know, when you're that inspired, you just kind of decide to reach your goals even higher. And so I ended up trying to achieve that and went beyond it and ran 16 marathons in 16 months in 13 different countries. So, you know, I like to think that there's nothing more important than surrounding yourself around people that you want to become like and that that inspire you because energies are contagious. And I was very thankful that I met her and other people like her that helped me direct my life in a way that I find more meaningful and more open to possibilities of what what one can do. That is amazing. And what type of training do you do and would someone need to do to get to that elite level? I mean, running double marathons, running the marathon at Everest Base Camp and those high altitude marathons and stuff like that. I mean, that's an extremely elite level of fitness conditioning. So I think the first part, obviously, is what you said, is you have to believe that you too could do this if you prioritized and wanted to figure out how to do this. But then once you make that decision, what does your sort of training regimen look like to get in the physical condition where you can actually complete a run like that? I think what's, what's really interesting is that it's a fine line between going outside your comfort zone, and that's, a, that's where they say growth happens, And then there's outside of that, at some point, there's a danger zone where it can actually be harmful. So for example, if someone never ran more than a few miles or kilometers, you might not want to attempt a hundred miler, right? You can injure yourself, obviously. But I think the risk is more that people don't push themselves. I think that that danger zone is a lot farther out than people think. So yes, there's set training schedules that I would obviously recommend that people follow But truth be told, I didn't. I often just sort of followed very loosely these plans and just trusted and paid attention to my body and realized when my mind was making excuses for what I can and cannot do. Like, for example, my last big race was the only other time I ran a double marathon. This one was harder across Bali from top to bottom. But I was shocked when I found out of the 13 runners, including me, I think around half of them had never run a marathon. So they went from a half marathon to a double marathon four times. And some of them had never even run, even in their training, more than like a third of that distance. And that every one of the 13 had succeeded. And, you know, one of the runners there had told me a half marathon is a physical challenge. A full marathon is a mental challenge. But an ultra marathon is a spiritual challenge. And uh, I don't know, I got a kick out of that. I mean, that can mean a lot of things, but I kind of got a glimpse of what he meant. We can do a lot more than we think we can. Can you talk a little bit about that Bali Ultra Marathon and just share the context in terms of that marathon, who was benefiting, and sort of your experience in the lead up to that run? So actually, you mentioned the Nomad Cruise. Just after Nomad Cruise 5 one year ago, I was looking for a, a new opportunity to take my life to the next level after hanging out with all, all these inspiring people. And you know them 
as well as I do. They're just, they're all doing such cool things. And I came across this thing called the Bali Hope Ultra, and it's a social enterprise with the, for the first time ever, they were going to hold the first ever ultra marathon in Bali. And the goal was to fundraise to help put disadvantaged kids through primary school. Uh, and the goal, financial goal was to raise 100000 Australian dollars. It ended up being 13 runners. So I love the idea because honestly, I have been uh, to quite a few places, but I think Bali, if I had to pick one, would be my favorite place on earth because sure, it has like amazing beauty and a lot to offer. But for me, it also symbolizes where I had the most personal growth. So I have a special connection that helped me advance me on my personal journey. And I, I would love to give back to the places that gave to me. And so when I saw this, like I literally had butterflies in my stomach. I mean, I was, because it was a challenge that I didn't know I can do. I wasn't even in as good shape as I used to be. So I just thought maybe I literally couldn't run it. And then also the fundraising goal of raising several thousand dollars. Traditionally, I've been more shy about putting myself out there. So that challenge would have been equally as challenging for me. But that's exactly what I realized why I needed to do it. I went for it. And ultimately, I'm, I'm really relieved and happy that it all worked out. And most importantly, was able to raise from my generous community uh, several thousand dollars to help put kids through school. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Bali is a place where I have only spent a very short period of time. And it's obviously a major digital nomad hub. A lot of people go there, spend time and speak, uh, you know, incredibly positively about it as you are doing now. So that's definitely a spot that I need to spend some more time, hopefully starting this upcoming year. So that's awesome, man. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other places that you mentioned that you've been. You said you've seen the Taj Mahal, you went to India, but you also, I understand, participated in the legendary rickshaw run across <laughs> India, which I have only read about and heard about. I know a couple of people that have done it, but it is really supposed to be quite something. I imagine a lot of the listeners have never even heard of it. So can you explain, first of all, what it is? And then second of all, what your experience was like doing that? If anyone decides to take it on, just recognize that I warned you, it's not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> but I actually, joking aside, I, I do recommend it. It is called the Rickshaw Run, held by a really cool group organization called The Adventurists that lead random wild adventures around the world. So what it is, is three times a year, they organize anywhere from like 80 to 100 rickshaws, maybe up to 200 people, two or three per rickshaw to drive across India in an auto rickshaw. And for those 
who might not know what a rickshaw is, it's sort of like a, uh, a golf cart <laughs> of some sort. Yeah, they call them tuk-tuks, tuk-tuks. in a lot of places. It's that type of a, a vehicle, yeah. Yeah, which are really intended for very short routes in inner city places, not highway driving, not on what some things, they, they call them roads, but they're not really roads in some places of India. And plus the driving in India is, of all the places I've been, definitely the the riskiest, most random, which makes it an adventure, which was the goal. So yeah, just a couple of weeks after I started my journey at the Taj Mahal, I, I embarked on that journey from the Northeast India, all the way down to Kerala at the bottom for 4,000 kilometers, which is what, maybe 2,500 miles. And it was a sort of a race, but the goal was to get there within two weeks. So that required driving basically from sunrise to sunset for two straight weeks. And, uh, you know, part of the adventure is the damn thing breaks down. Like mine broke down 20 times. And I have to tell you, the one thing that really opened my eyes about India and about other places, but India especially, is that it shows what the real world is all about, the real world in terms of I could not believe that of the 20 times it broke down each and every time, no matter where I was, within one or two minutes, one or several people would come up wanting to give me a hand and help me without even speaking the language most of the time. And they would help me no matter what it took. Sometimes they would even go straight to my engine without even looking at me and fix it in like five minutes and then walk away. Sometimes... Somebody would push it with me all like for half an hour in the hot sun to a mechanic. And uh, actually, the one time that one guy did this, I asked him at the end, I said, hey, oh, my God, thank you so much. How can I possibly repay you? And he said to me, "Uh, no, 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 I won't take any money. No way, no way. And I I responded, "Okay, but please, somehow, how can I help you? And he he looked down all shyly and looked back up into my eyes. And he said, will you be my Facebook friend? <laughs> and I was like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I, I would do a lot more than that. Um, but that's just, it just showed the beauty of people that, that want to help strangers. It's amazing. And I also feel like that the social media connection is really interesting to be able to connect with local folks on your travels. Like, I, you know, when I lived in Cairo uh, for about a year, I, you know, go to the same falafel place, you know, every day and this. And so people know you. I mean, they give you hugs when you come. They, I mean, they're so friendly. And then when I was leaving Egypt, right, like there's a lot of people, including like these, you know, the street food vendors and people that you got to say goodbye to. And it's like an emotional thing. So I connected them all on social media because they all have Facebook. I mean, they have, of course, never been out of Egypt. You know (laughs) what I mean? Absolutely. And so for them, it's really interesting and exciting to have people that are traveling around the world and this kind of stuff and have interesting stuff. But for me, it's also super cool to remain connected and remember those people because when they post something, right, you're like, oh man, and then you can like it and this, and you're actually able to stay connected with them virtually in a meaningful way. And then as you travel more and you meet more of those types of people that like really positively affected your life because they actually cared about you in that moment or for that interaction. And it was meaningful to you. And so you're able to stay in touch with all of those people and keep them in your virtual social ecosystem. It's really an amazing thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's even more meaningful for me than for them because it keeps the travels alive and keeps the moments that you're feeling growth and awareness of this amazing place and diverse place we call earth. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. 
Yeah, I went to India last year. It was actually my first time going. I went twice. So I didn't do the rickshaw run yet, although that is on my uh, my bucket list, I think. Need to find the right people to uh, co-pilot that thing with me. It would be up for it. But uh, yeah, I did the Taj Mahal, did Delhi, did Mumbai. Also went to the south to Kerala, which was just absolutely amazing and gorgeous and so different from much of the rest of India. Like I think a lot of people might have an impression that like India is like this you know, one homogenous sort of place, but it's this massive country with a billion people and it's so huge and all the different states in India, you know, all speak different languages and they're very different. So, you know, when you go to a big city like Delhi and then all of a sudden you go to Kerala, right, which has the lowest poverty in all of India, the highest literacy rate in all of India, it's the cleanest state in all of India, and you're just out on the backwaters and these houseboats, and you're just like, was this the same country that I was just in when I was in Delhi? It's just because it's so diverse and so different. And, you know, really, really, you know, important, I think, to travel around India so you understand all those different things. Then I was at last year for Diwali, I was in Amritsar in Punjab, mm, went, to, yeah. went to the Golden, the Golden Temple. Temple. Amazing, right? I was there. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, just a stunning piece of architecture. And this, for people that don't know, is the number one Sikh pilgrimage site in the world. And Punjab is one of the only states, I think, in India that does not have a Hindu majority, has a Sikh majority. Again, a a really cool piece of cultural diversity there, right, in terms of that whole history and culture and everything. And the Golden Temple itself is just stunning. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, that's a perfect illustration of the other, other point I made about someone helped me when I broke down is that when I think of India as diverse as it is, it's probably the most diverse place in the world. I think one thing that is consistent is the sense of community. So when they see someone broken down, that's their village, that's their community. That's you're one of them. They're one of you. And when I was at the golden temple, I think that might've been the most amazing temple experience I've ever had. They welcome, I think up to a hundred thousand people per day. And this is mind-boggling, but they offer a meal for free to all 100,000 people. So I was just sitting there on the floor with thousands of people eating free food. And I just thought to myself, I've never seen anything like this. It's a real sense of togetherness and community. It is amazing. And you know, just to add to that, in terms of my experience there, I was actually there for Diwali, right, which is the largest celebration of the year um, in India, usually um, the festival of lights and all of that. And, you know, I wasn't really sure what they expect. Oh, India, Diwali, this kind of stuff. But what it turns out when you go, it's actually the way that they celebrate it is it's not like, you know, it's sort of like the inverse of Brazil. It's not like everybody goes out into the streets and parties and does these big outdoor festivals. No, in fact, everyone prioritizes going home with their families and spending that time with their families. And then they go to the rooftops and they shoot fireworks and all this kind of stuff. But everyone is literally in their home for Diwali. So if you're like there as a traveler, you don't know anyone, then you're not, it's not like you just go out in Brazil and like party in the streets, right? It's very different. And so what was amazing is the Airbnb host of where we were staying, he said, you're going to be here for Diwali. We say, yeah. He said, well, you know, do you have family or like, a, you know, friends that you're going to be eating dinner with at their house and spending that with. And we're like, well, no. And he goes, well, then you are going to come to my house 
and join my family and sit at our dining room table. And they invited us for the whole thing, like the, the spiritual, like prayer ceremony that they do. And then we sat at their dinner with the kids and the grandmothers and, you know, they brought us food and then went up to the rooftop with their kids and everybody. And they were shooting the fireworks and we watched the volley from the rooftop, not of our apartment building, but they drove us to their house. And we were at their house in their home and they literally treated us like members of the family for that entire night. It was unbelievable. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you learn when you travel. People are truly amazing all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it has to do with getting outside of the cities, you know, in the more real parts of the world and real meaning just, I mean, the cities are real, of course, too. But I mean, just getting out to the off the touristy tracks. A quick story you reminded me of is when I was in Sicily and it just happened to fall on Easter weekend. And I was with a friend and we were roaming around Sicily looking for a place to eat. And I, we hadn't realized that every, everything is closed in this small town in Sicily on, on Easter. We were all up to a, what we thought was a restaurant, which it was a restaurant, but they were closed. And we were confused because there were what we thought were customers sitting around. They said, oh no, this is our family, our big family, maybe like 20 or so. And they saw how we were desperate to find a place. And they said, hey, listen, come join us. And we had the most amazing, also longest, it was like a five hour, seven course meal, you know, where there was no menu. They just come bring us more food and drinks. And at the end, it was like, they didn't even really want money. And of course, that made us want to even chip in more. It's just being so welcomed into a real cultural experience that you can't, you can't sign up for this. Not the, you know, these aren't tours, like your moment on the rooftop in India, watching the fireworks. This is like real travel, feeling, experiencing like, how locals actually live their lives. Right. And I feel also one of the important things is the extent to which you can slow travel and stay places for a while. I mean, that's why my my experience in Cairo was so amazing, right? I mean, I was able to live there for nine months. So I literally would go and, you know, get my lunch every day from these guys doing the street food, right? And those guys, I mean, just so people understand the cost of this stuff. I mean, I could literally get like two sandwiches for lunch for like 50 cents, 75 cents, something like that, U.S., I mean, how much can they possibly be profiting on, you know, 50 cents for two sandwiches, right? I mean, and then live off of that. I mean, it's amazing. And so what's important about that is so when I was there, my sister came to visit me from New York City and, you know, I'm showing her around. So I'm showing her, oh, these are like my spots, you know, where I eat and my stuff and this. And when I took her to this street cart, right, full and Tomeo cart in Cairo, the guys all know me there, of course. And I explained to them in my... Arabic, that this is my sister and she has just arrived from New York City and she's here to visit Egypt for her first time. And they go behind the cart, they pull out a you know plastic chair and like a table, they're brushing it off. <laughs> they sit her down, right? And they say, you know, sit down here in this chair and this table, which is a street cart, right? They don't do that, right? So then they pull it out and this is it. And then they basically just start serving her food and they put the, you know, food and then so she's eating and this and that. And then at the end, you know, I go to to pay them for the food and they say, no way, we're not taking it. She's a guest in our country. So this meal is on us. Welcome to Egypt. Thank you for coming. Wow. Wow. I love it. I love it. And I think what you're, one of the things you're touching upon is something that's really important to get the message out that what we see on TV about places around the world are not reflections of the real place. And so for example, you know, Matt, that my family is originally from Egypt. And to hear you share that story from Egypt of how hospitable people can be and how welcoming and, and safe 
it can be, it's nice to get uh, a more proportional assessment of, of what's going on. It's easy to get scared to go to certain places. Like I, I spent the last few months in Colombia, which has a reputation to be a dangerous place. And people are often saying, oh, be careful, be careful, you know, watch out. And of course, everyone on the planet, you need to be careful. Yet, it's amazing uh, how they're not actually correlated to the level of real danger compared to what's on the news. 100%. I mean, we're in Brazil right now and same thing. It was really interesting. Just, you know, I had lived in Brazil before. I was in Rio for a couple months and been to Sao Paulo and you've been to Brazil before. And a lot of the people, though, that were on the Nomad cruise with us coming over here had never been before. And they've been hearing all of this stuff. Brazil is so dangerous. It's this, like you just walk on the street and you're going to, you know, I mean, there's a real, there was a real fear there. And so I think, you know, in speaking to us, like me and you about it, you know, that anyone who came up to us, we were able to sort of assuage, you know, some of their concerns and, you know, and and talk to them about it. And it was amazing because we've literally been here now for 24 hours. And I was just, you know, out there talking to some friends of ours earlier before this interview. I said, oh, how's your day been? And they were like, this is unbelievable (laughs) in brazil i was like that's amazing to hear like what do you find unbelievable about it and they're like well everything right they're like the people the music the beach the this and it feels so safe here and i was just expecting it to feel so dangerous and i just i walk around and this and i feel amazingly safe this is nothing like what i heard it was like absolutely and i was like good you know (laughs) good like that's why we travel yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah and we have those experiences I just spent a little over a month in East Africa, which was the first. I'd been in North Africa, right? I had done Egypt, as I said, for about a year. I'd been there a few times. Uh, I'd been to Morocco a couple of times, spent about a month there. And I had spent about five weeks in Cape Town in South Africa, but I'd never been anywhere between South Africa and, you know, and the North Africa. And so I went to Nairobi for a month and I was based there for a month and got to see Tanzania. And then a Ugandan friend of mine invited me to come to Kampala and who actually I had met on the Nomad Cruise. Right. So she's born, born and raised Uganda, you know, lives in Kampala. And she's like, if you're going to be in Nairobi, you got to see Uganda. You can't come to East Africa and not see Uganda. So she's like, just come stay with me and we'll hang out and uh, I'll show you around all stuff. So I went to Kampala and stayed there with her in Uganda for four days. And we went to see the source of the Nile River. Mm. And we just went Ginger. Yeah, in Jinja. And we'd hit the, you know, all the nightclubs in Kampala, which are just unbelievable. And, you know, really just, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I was super moved by, you know, both Uganda and Kenya really just had an incredible impact on me. And I I really just felt very connected and resonated with that region and with the people there. And just, again, how sweet and kind everyone was, my goodness, just blew me away. One thing I did also while I was there is I went on a safari in Masai Mara, which is the first time I had done a safari. And that was just, I mean, to be that close to those animals in the wild was just really also a brand new experience for no me. That was, that was truly extraordinary in a unique way that you can't really explain until you've actually done it, right? You can go to the zoo and you can see animals or you can watch videos of animals and stuff. But when you're actually there and they're in their natural habitat and you're just a few feet away from them, it's just, it's quite something. So the whole experience was really amazing, but I'd love for you to share. I know you've spent a good bit of time in East Africa and you've had uh, both some volunteer opportunities there that you've done, as well as some sort of adventures uh, traveling (laughs) around the country. And I'd love to hear just how your experience was. Sure, sure, absolutely. And uh, it actually connects to your other question about my favorite places on the planet, because when I was leaving my corporal life the first time, I 
was craving a more meaningful experience and more of an adventure. And so I did do some just fun uh, travels and adventures travels, but I wanted to get involved and, and somehow just give back. And I was lucky enough to be selected to do a fellowship with Kiva, K-I-V-A. It's a microfinance crowdfunding platform to help give opportunities to people around the world. And I was placed in Kenya. And at first, to be honest, I wasn't so thrilled because I had never actually visited Sub-Saharan Africa before. And I was kind of looking for a quote unquote easier place. And then I, I thought about it and I said, wait a minute, why am I doing this again? And I reminded myself, I am seeking adventure. I am seeking change. I am seeking to go into the unknown. So after thinking about it, I realized, no, this is exactly what I want. I just didn't know, like running a longer distance in a marathon. I didn't know I was ready for that. And I wanted to push the boundaries. So I went for it and it ended up being one of the most valuable experiences of my life. You know, it really opened my eyes and, and my heart in the ways I didn't know was possible. So I got to uh, integrate and see uh, uh, some of the poorest slums in the world, some of the most rural poor farmers in the world, some that didn't know not only English, but didn't know, forget the internet, I'm talking about computers. And so I was, one of, part of my job was to explain what Kiva was. It's hard enough to explain it a little bit to like someone who actually is in the white collar job, but to explain it to someone who doesn't know what a computer is, it was a pretty interesting experience. I, I ended up saying it was like a, having a, a billboard, you know, with you can borrow money. It was, it was fun. But what was amazing is that through eye contact, through smiles and through translators, you can have a real genuine human connection with someone. It's powerful. It's powerful to connect with those in the world that you never thought you would and for them as well. But uh, it also, of course, led to some unexpected adventures, right? So just shortly after I had started my, my trip there, I found myself taking a matatu, which is like a van, a very crowded, hot and sweaty van. They're, um, they're like the micro buses <laughs> in Egypt. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is like, you got to imagine like a van that she's supposed to seat maybe like seven or eight people and they cram like 12 to 14 in <laughs> at least maybe a few chickens on top exactly and uh yeah so i it was a long day to get to western kenya and like places like kakamanga and kasumu and so i needed to get to the east coast which was like double the journey to mombasa area a town called Kalifi. long story short I didn't know if I was ready to spend like two days on a matatu right away. So I decided to just keep going west into Uganda and buying a one-way flight from Kampala, like you just mentioned, to Mombasa. So I find myself on the border and I ask around, well, how do people get to Uganda? And they said, oh, you just hire a, a motorbike, hire a guy on a motorbike to take you. So I, I flagged down a guy, had my, my big backpack and me and him on this motorbike and we're driving along and I'm like, oh my God. I'm going to cross a border by land uh, two weeks after coming to Africa for the first time in that part of Africa. Long story short, we drive, we drive, maybe a half hour, and then all of a sudden we get off the bike. Uh, he says to me, okay, you're, you can get off now. And I was, said, well, what do you mean? I want to go to Uganda. He was like, what do you mean? You are in Uganda. Welcome to Uganda. <laughs> and I was like, uh, excuse me, what about the border? He said, oh, no, we passed border. <laughs> I was like, what about a visa? He said, oh, no, visa's $25. I saved you $25. <laughs> like looking for a tip. 
Meanwhile, some police officers come up and are like, what's going on here? And now I'm freaking out because I just crossed a border illegally. And now he's freaking out. And they're speaking in uh, Lugandan language, which I obviously don't speak. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to end up in African jail. <laughs> he comes back over and he's like, listen, we have to go back to the border. I'm like, good. <laughs> and we're on the bike and he said to me, I can't believe you. You almost got me arrested. You should pay me double. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, what do you mean? You almost got me arrested. I should pay you nothing. <laughs> oh man. And I walked across the border again and these guys were trying to sell me currency, like foreign exchange currency. And I told them I'm going to Kenya. So I go to Kenya. I pay the visa. I walk back to within 20 minutes and see those guys trying to sell me currency again. And they say to me, Oh, welcome back. How was Kenya? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. That's amazing. It's amazing that you took the Matatu that far. Like I rode in the Matatu basically as a local cultural experience, but just for, you know, 20 minutes to get from one place in the city to another place in the city. So the fact that you took it, and you know, and there's like, you know, 12 people crammed into this van. And the guy, of course, uh, you know, is is soliciting more people to come into the van. And some dude comes in with like two live chickens, you know, <laughs> walks by me, brings them into the back. I mean, this is a really a, a true local adventure to take the Matatu anywhere. And you took it all the way across the country. That is amazing, my friend. Yeah, I have an anecdote about Matatu. There's a few minutes after that incident, I was trying to get to Jinja, where you met for the, the beginning of the Nile River. And I had to take a few hour Matatu ride to get there. So I show up to the station and there was no other Mzungu, as they call them, which is local for white man, basically. And so everyone, you know, I stuck out like a sore thumb and I asked which one goes to Jinja. And they said, okay, this one. And I said, okay, when's it leaving? Oh, in 10 minutes, you know, fast forward one or two hours. And I'm like, when are we leaving? You said 10 minutes, two hours ago. And the gentleman said, oh, well, we leave when it's full. The Matatu was full. And I said, well, how many people do you need? He said, six. And I was like, how much is that? And it ended up being like, not much for me. I don't know, like $10 or something total. So I said, so if I give you $10, can we go? He said, yes. So I had him $10. And suddenly, like someone said something loudly. And the Matatu just got flooded with like 20 more people. <laughs> and we're all squeezed <laughs> in. And I'm like, wait a minute here. And he's like, bye. Have a good time in Jinja. <laughs> Can't knock the hustle, man. That's good. <laughs> That's gotta give, you got to give props to people like that, man. They do the they get to do the entrepreneurial hustle at the very local level. It's like fair enough, man. Like absolutely, you know, well played, sir. Oh, it's a win win. I salute you. That's amazing. Yeah, but the source of the Nile is so interesting. A lot of people don't know the source of the Nile River is in Uganda because it irrigates eleven countries, obviously, and of course, Egypt is probably where most people associate the Nile with, of course. But it's amazing when you go to Jinja and you see the source of the Nile in Uganda that there's an enormous Mahatma Gandhi, you know, a tribute there, a bust, a statue, a whole shrine to Gandhi because he had his ashes scattered in a few of the major rivers, including the source of the Nile River in Uganda. And so there's like, you know, Indian, high-level Indian politicians that come to Uganda to plant trees and pay tribute and stuff like that. So that's another, I mean, I guess that loops back into our India discussion, right? To tie it back. But it's just amazing how interconnected the world is in those ways. Absolutely. It's fascinating. 
super incredible stuff. So, all right, Tarek, let's talk a little bit about the Nomads Giving Back initiative that you founded and are building. Can you talk a little bit about what led to that and what's that all about? So, you know, throughout my travels, I had a wonderful opportunity to participate and get engaged and to find ways to give back. And so I mentioned Kiva in Kenya, which was one of the major initiatives I've been involved in. But I also did some some house builds in places like China and in Zambia. I helped build homes for orphans for a couple of weeks. And I always found that when I look back on my life, the times I gave back were the most meaningful, without question. And whether it was like consulting for a social enterprise in Sri Lanka or fundraising for the Bali Kids Education Initiative, it's wonderful to feel that not only you may be having a, making a difference, but those you help end up lifting you even more. And then your community often are also can get inspired by what you're doing, which then makes me even more inspired. So it, it became like this sort of, I almost said life hack, but just a way a strategic step to raise my conscious level of the life that I'm living and how wonderful it is and how when I gave back, it, it, it made me come more alive. And I know that I want to do more. I found myself falling into the nomad or digital nomad community, which seems to be growing exponentially. And what I realized is that a lot of people are, everyone is on their own individual personal journey and are looking for different things in life. Some of these things I'm, I'm learning, are, I think, are universal truths that the more you can contribute to society, the, the more meaningful life you can have. And I realize that a lot of people say they travel because they want to get more culturally engaged. They want to learn about different cultures. They want to meet local people and they want to give back. But a lot of times the biggest barrier is not knowing where to start, who they can trust. And sometimes people just need a little nudge to, you know, to do the good things in life, like going to the gym or eating a salad. You just need a little bit of social pressure to kind of give a little nudge to remind yourself that it's actually good for you. So that's where I conceived of the idea to launch Nomads Giving Back, which is literally being launched like this week with a pilot program that we just came off Nomad Cruise. And Johannes, the uh, amazing founder of Nomad Cruise, gave this amazing opportunity to collaborate on the fundraising charity dinner that he holds on every cruise. And so we're going to be partnering with social projects in Brazil so that the funds raised by the generous nomads will be invested into the communities that we call home away from home, which is really the vision for Nomads Giving Back to create awareness and opportunities for nomads to give back. That's awesome, man. You'll be a lot further along in the initiative once this episode is published, but I know you already have the website URL. So if you want to share that where people can go and learn more about it, what is that website? Sure. Thank you. It's nomadsgivingback.com for social media as well. It's just nomadsgivingback. That's awesome. So we are going to put all that in the show notes. So you can just go to the show notes page at themaverickshow.com and we're going to have links to everything that we have talked about in this episode. Tark, are you ready for some lightning round questions? Let's do it. The lightning round. Okay, what is one book that you would recommend that's most influenced you over the years? There's one that stands out above the rest for me. And about a year ago, I stumbled upon it. And it's called Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And that book is a lot more about finding your connection to your inner self 
touching on spirituality and just trying to understand what, what life's all about. Awesome. We're definitely going to link that up in the show notes as well. And I'm going to grab a copy of that because I have not read it yet either. What is one app or productivity tool that you would most recommend? What I've been using recently in terms of when I go to my phone, which app that I just started using in the past several months, is a, it's a meditation app. It's called Headspace. And I, also, I might also be using one called Waking Up by Sam Harris because I, I tasted that and it was also great. But the point is that I have a, a background in being a very busy-minded New York City mindset. And I wanted to learn to meditate because I, I understood the importance of it, but just couldn't. And I'm finally getting to the point now where I built a daily habit out of it. And I've already noticed a lot of personal growth and getting a clearer head of how I want to live my life and the intentions for that day. And so I'm glad to say that I finally have the daily habit. And I think an app for me is what helped do the trick. So Headspace or Waking Up. Who is one celebrity or public figure or author that's currently alive today that you've never met that you would most like to have dinner with? So, I mean, the first two that come to mind that aren't so original, but for me is the truth would be President Obama, because I find his story very profound and meaningful and how he left his mark on the world and the inspiration that he has given everyone, including myself. Not to get political, but that's, that's the truth from reading his book to following him along the way and going to his inauguration and everything. And secondly, I, if I can get a second choice also would be Malala, because it's on the other end where it's amazing how inspired people can get and motivated and encouraged by young people and how who are so well-spoken and convicted in their beliefs that it helps remind me that to let go of the conditions that society puts on you, but just follow your heart and speak the truth. And those who your message resonates with, it will resonate with. And whose it doesn't, it won't. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self, knowing everything that you know now and having gone through all of your life experiences, if you could go back and speak to 20-year-old Tarek, what would you say? Oh, man, we can go for hours on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I would say 20-year-old self, there really is a lot I would say, but the, the one major theme would be you do you. And, you know, I think I was quite conditioned on social acceptance and trying to please society and those that I was told to impress or felt I needed to impress. And in the end, I realized that try to find out your true authentic self and your, your voice and, and go after that. And, and that's all that matters. All right. Having been to 100 countries now, what are your top three, if you had to pick or recommend to people, top three destinations you would most recommend that other people visit? So for me personally, I found Bali, as I mentioned, to be my favorite place. And the thing is about a place like Bali is that it's not just a place. It's every place you can go to. It's how you choose your time, where to spend it, who to spend your time with. And there are many, many different versions of Bali. Uh, and so for me, I, I found a lot of uh, personal growth and human and special connections with people because I think it, it certain parts of Bali attract that energy. So Bali is definitely one of them. Secondly, as a city boy in New York, I found that I neglected nature and the importance of nature for so long. So when I did my hiking in Nepal, I did some solo hiking adventures too, which I found so impactful on my mindset. 
not like not just the nature, but just the adventure, the 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 self reliance of figuring out where to go next, and the physical struggle combined with that. And it was very very meaningful for me to be deep deep into nature offline. You know, uh, I spent a month without internet offline, which I found very challenging, and that made me realize how important it is to go offline. The third place, I I almost don't want to say a specific place, but just somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, or even Western Africa. I haven't been yet. That's where I would like to go. One of the places I'd like to go next, because that is so far different from where I grew up. That I think shaking up your social norms is powerful on your mindset. Well, you just led into the next question, which is, what are your top three bucket list destinations that you have not yet? Ben, do you most want to go that are on the top of your list right now? I sort of had this goal. I made a thousand day goal, three of them before turning 40. And I have about a hundred and I don't know, maybe 55 days left, but who's counting? And a hundred countries is one of them because that was how I like to say fueled my soul. To challenge my body was the marathon goal, which I I just hit the 25th marathon two months ago in Colombia. But the final goal is to create the social enterprise, Nomads Giving Back in this case, which I'm, I'm launching as we speak. So the point I'm bringing here is that I didn't really have the itch to travel after 100 countries. So when you ask me what's next in terms of what I want, what I realized, it, the 100 countries doesn't matter. The number doesn't matter. It's about exploring within. And for me, traveling to new places helped bring that out of me. But I really want people to understand that it's not a competition, it's not a number, that's irrelevant I just realized for me, it served as a great mechanism to make me think outside the box. That said, if I was to pick three places, I would definitely say Western Africa is an entire region I haven't even touched. And I'd love to explore that. I think I love the idea of visiting Tibet because I appreciate a lot of the, the culture and the traditions. And Nepal is the closest place I've been, or maybe Bhutan. I just really clicked with the, the principles of the culture. Let's see, a third place. A third place, actually, it's a country I've been to, but every single person I met from Vancouver and that area are amazing. And I just hear such amazing things about how how beautiful it is and the diversity of things to do. And these days when I decide to where I'm going to go next, I often prioritize the people. I want to go where I like the people and the culture. And even though Canada is just next door to the U.S., for me, I like to chase the amazing people I met in Vancouver. That's awesome, man. One more question for us to close this out. And then I want you to tell people how they can find you and follow you and get involved with things. The last question is with respect to this concept of finding your purpose, I feel like that's a big one that a lot of people struggle with where to even start, right? We're obviously socialized into a lot of stuff and we do a lot of things for a lot of other people or for different reasons. And so, when people want to start grappling with that, right? And they're introspectively wanting to ask authentically, how do I find and pursue my purpose? What are your thoughts, suggestions, tips for how people try to begin their own journey? I feel like I have a lot of personal growth to go. I'm still learning every single second. But that said, I feel like I finally reached a point where I I know what to do. It's a matter of execution and in finding purpose and understanding what life's all about for me. So I'm more excited to be alive now than I've ever been. And that's a pretty powerful statement because 
I mean, there were times where that wasn't the case. For one, I think, for me anyway, what worked is creating circumstances and situations that you do not feel comfortable, that the thought of it is overwhelming. And to set goals beyond what you think are possible and just to go after it and see what happens. Because in the end, it's the process. It's not the end result. It, the growth and the experience happens during that journey, not at the end. I mean, just, just last week, I gave my first big public talk. For me, that was a huge fear, something I never thought I would do. And I realized that that was potentially one of the turning points in my life in terms of where I can take my life next. Whether it was a new distance in a race or a new country that I was afraid to go to or some sort of volunteer thing that I thought that would be too scary. Every single time, I've never looked back at one of those things and, and regretted it. Not at all. So as cliche as it is, to step outside your comfort zone and don't underestimate what we can do. And the, the second point I would say that's really, really valuable for, in my life story is chasing inspiration. Like get to the people and the places where the people that you want to become more like are. I mean, we just stopped off the Nomad Cruise yesterday. The amount of growth and inspiration and connections that happened in those two weeks are mind-boggling. I mean, there are so many exciting projects that are going to come out of that and connections from people, including myself. Well, your talk was amazing. You crushed it. I approached you afterwards, not only to say that, but to say, I definitely want to interview you on the podcast and get your story out and, you know, all the great stuff that you're doing and let folks know how they can get involved in it. So hopefully that now has led to this and then other people hear this and then, you know what I mean? And it'll have a whole ripple effect is what I'm hoping because you're doing some really important and fantastic work. So let's conclude by just letting folks know one more time about the Nomads Giving Back website and how they can get involved and then also, if people want to connect with you personally, follow you on social media, or you know, just get in touch, how do they do that? Absolutely. Thank you very much. So the website is nomadsgivingback.com. And the handles for Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn are also Nomads Giving Back. I'm just building this now. And there's a lot of initial interest. So I'm excited about that. But the goal is very simple, to inspire nomads and travelers to give back to the communities that we call home away from home. So I welcome all and any interest in supporting this because there's a lot of positive change that needs to happen. And the more the merrier, if we can unite and leverage the collective power together, a lot can be accomplished. And I just want to say, Matt, thank you. You know, we connected on the cruise and I really admire what you represent and what you're up to. And uh, this Maverick show, I just know is going to be a huge hit. I'm super excited for you and I'm going to be very thrilled to say, hey, I was one of his first guests back in the day. Awesome to have you on, Tark. Thanks so much, brother. And let's go uh, enjoy the afternoon on the beach in Brazil. Let's do it. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. 
Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.